Well, I've been here long enough now for you to know me and to know my wife, and you can understand then why I say it's a miracle that she married me. That's more of a miracle than you think. You see, there's this, um, well, it's just a miracle that we got married. Because, allegedly, I spent a little time in court this week, so I got my legal language down here. Allegedly, we set up a date, and then one of us failed to show up. Miracle that she stuck with me after that. But it's a miracle that her daddy let me live after that, much less accept me into the family. Now, through the years, that's been kind of a running uh, joke with us, even though it allegedly happened. I don't remember anything about it, but allegedly it happened, and uh, I was living a very selfish life at the time, so it, it well could have been a true situation. Uh, all of us, I suppose, if we think for just a few moments, can think back to a situation in our lives where we were on the receiving end of someone else's lack of integrity. And when someone else does us wrong, as we often label those kind of circumstances, it's easy for us to let that situation commandeer our lives. We, we can't get past the hurt or the pain or the, uh, just the outright sense of rejection that we get that someone else would not have enough concern for us or respect for us that they would say one thing and do something else. Jesus says to us, don't be that guy. Don't be the one who says one thing and does something else. We're in the Sermon on the Mount again, and we're in this middle of this section in Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn there with us, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll begin reading in verse 33 in just a couple of minutes. But uh, we're, we're in this section now where Jesus is laying out some of the support for the thesis of this sermon that he's preaching. The thesis comes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, when he says to his disciples, unless your righteousness goes beyond or exceeds or surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't make it into the kingdom of heaven. And that, that's a huge statement, and especially in that day and age, the scribes and the Pharisees were the professional religionists. They were the ones, if anybody got it right, it would have been those guys. Jesus lays the standard out for, for his followers, and, and he says, unless you go beyond those guys, you're just not going to make it. It's unthinkable for, for anybody to even consider that they could go beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus spends a little bit of time as he w unfolds this sermon in the last part of chapter 5. He gives six different statements. You have heard one thing, he says, but I'm going to tell you how I want you to understand this. You, you have heard this, but I say to you this. And in the process of doing that, these six different statements, Jesus just unfolds for them what a surpassing righteousness looks like. And we're in the fourth one. We've made it halfway through these. And with this fourth one, Jesus now turns uh, the focus just a little bit as he begins to talk about our relationships with other people. And so we read in uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. 
But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, a footstool, or his, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, throughout church history, there have been those who take their own legalism onto this passage, and they immediately jump to what Jesus says here. They take it without any kind of reflection and say, okay, that means that if I go and I'm called for jury duty and they say, take this oath, that you swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, or that you will deal correctly in all of this, uh, there, there were, are those in Christian history who say, well, I can't do that anymore because of this passage. There's others, an oath of office. I can't do that because of this. Others even say, I can't even do the Pledge of Allegiance because of what Jesus says here. And I would say that those people drastically miss what Jesus is talking about here. We have to go back to his whole intent. Jesus is saying to us as his followers, here's how you live your life out. This is what it looks like practically. And all of that points to our responsibility to be salt and light, to be brilliant in our culture so that when people see us, they reflect back on the glory of God and who he is and what he has to say. Jesus is not giving us a new legalism here. He's helping us to bear down and dig down and lean into life in a way that causes other people to see us and to see him alive in us. So how do we, how do, we do this integrity thing so as to be brilliant. Not brilliant smart, but brilliant in appearance. How do we live our lives of integrity in such a way that people who are out there look at us and see Jesus alive in us? How do we pull this off? Well, I would say that we first have to begin with this fundamental value. The value is that people matter, and so we need to treat people like they matter. Now, when I first got here a few months ago, we started our fourth month this week. I know for you it may seem like four years. It's just been a few months. But one of the things I took into our staff meetings each week was the set of values that I brought with me that helped to govern how I function, and I believe that as a staff we're trying to function this way also. And here's the first value. It's an umbrella under which many other ones fall, but it's the one that I just quoted. People matter. And so we have to treat people like they matter. Jesus approaches this fourth statement here as he addresses a religion gone wrong. In the Old Testament, well, let me, let me go back for a second and, and highlight this. This formula that he has been using through this, you have heard that it was said. Now, up to this point, he's gone back into the law and specifically to the Ten Commandments, and he's pulled out things from the Ten Commandments. Now, Jesus gives us something of a mashup of Old Testament legal stuff. In doing so, he helps us to understand something about what God said about taking oaths, but in the process of doing that, he highlights the fact that these scribes and Pharisees, the professional religionists of his day, had taken the law and they had twisted it and made it all kinds of things that God did not intend. So we start with what God intended. Here, 
if you want them. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, this is part of the law. It says this, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. That's Deuteronomy 6, 13. So oaths and swearing are okay according to that. Numbers chapter 30 in verse 2 says this, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Those two passages seem to be informing what Jesus is saying as he looks backward. You have heard that it was said, oaths and vows are okay if done correctly. But we get to Leviticus chapter 19. And we read these words. Well, I think we do. You know, that's the problem with reading out of Leviticus. Nobody ever reads out of Leviticus. It's hard to find. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12 says this, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the... Um, <clears throat> And so, so profane the name of, the, of your God, I am the Lord, he says. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 uh, expounds on that. This is part of the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall not take the, Lord, uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so here's these twin bodies of truth that are hovering out there for the scribes and Pharisees. It's okay to take a vow, but you have to mean it if you do it. But you see, religion never takes God's Word enough at its face value and deal with it according to the way God intended it. They always seem to want to inject stuff into it. One commentator said that what the scribes and the Pharisees had done by the first century, the time of Jesus, was that they had taken those teachings about vows that were intended to help people make sure that they were being true and that they were speaking truth. And if God was to be involved in it, it was just a way of saying, if I don't follow through in this, then God is my judge. It's big stuff. But by the time Jesus speaks these words, it's into a situation and into a religious environment where the Jews had set up all kinds of interpretations that helped people figure out how to skirt around the integrity thing with vows. There were some vows that were binding, according to them, and some that weren't. And their goal in these, this interpretation that they did and how you could do one way without doing the other way, you could, you could essentially promise something without being held to it if you didn't use God's name in it. Well, they didn't use God's name at all in these days. They were overly sensitive about that. So they erupt, uh, erected this set of codes. And so if you, for instance, said, I swear by the altar, then uh, that was okay. You didn't really have to do that. That was an oath that you were not legally uh, obligated to follow through on. But if you said, I swear by the gold on the altar... Well, now you have somehow invoked God's presence because in their eyes, somehow God was more present in gold that was on the altar than he was in the altar itself. And so for you, even those of you who are attorneys, to be able to have figured out all of the ins and outs of what was a legally binding oath and what was not, what invoked God and what did not, you, you had to be a genius to be able to pull all of that together. 
And their goal, just so that we're clear in all of that, the goal in the way they set all that up was not so that they would operate with integrity. It was so that they were sure not to offend God. That's why Jesus in verses 34 through 36 gives us these four different examples. He's essentially quoting into some of the environment of those days. Verse 34, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the uh, throne of God, that's the first one, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Those first three are all things that they would have said, well, you know, that either, one group would have said, well, that's a binding oath if you, if you, uh, appealed to God through talking about Jerusalem. Others would have said, no, it's not the same thing. Jesus says, just don't do it at all. Jesus is interested in integrity. They're interested in personal advantage. You see, that's the foundation of this whole thing with Jesus. We can get lost just like they got lost in all of the little details, the minutiae of what you can and can't do according to these vows. But Jesus cuts to the chase. He speaks into a religion gone wrong, a religion that seemed to have failed to understand that people matter, and we have to treat people like they matter. Their system, just to re- reinforce what I've said, their system was to get to personal advantage through deceit. And if you knew the right codes... You could make promises that you didn't have to keep. Before we go any further, let's just wear this, shall we? What drives your dealings with people? Whether it's in business or in your family, you know, Thanksgiving's right around the corner. It's that great time of the year that we celebrate by going to family members that we don't really like and we can't stand being around and we spend a few days together. What drives your dealings with those people? Those people at work, maybe in your neighborhood. You know, some people, you can tell in dealing with them that they're just about selfish gain in their relationships. It's about using people for their benefit. I'm not suggesting that that's you. I'm just saying that those people are out there. We need to be careful because one of the things that I really want to make sure that we understand going into this today is that we live in a society that is eaten up with eating up people for personal advantage. You see, the way I see people impacts how I treat people. If I see individuals as resources or maybe as vehicles then I might well be tempted to use them to get what I want from them. When I do that, when I I see someone and I go into a relationship with someone strictly out of what I can get from them, then the tendency is for me to abuse them in the process. Let, Let me use a, this is a really crude example, and it takes it maybe a little bit off of kind of the the intensity of what we're talking about here, but I think it carries the point pretty well. Uh, By the way, how about those Houston Astros? (laughs) I know, (laughs) I know that we're supposed to support the Padres, right, because of the Chihuahuas, and I'm fine with that. I'm all really good with that, but um, how about those Astros? So, let's just say 
that you are dying, I mean dying, to get an Astros World Champions jersey. Now, they sell those for, I don't know, six or $7,000 probably by now. But let's just say that you just have to have one of those and you don't have the cash. Not only do you not have the cash, you, you don't have any anticipation of getting the cash for a long time. And by the time you finally save up enough, you're not going to be able to get one. So let's just say, following the example of what Jesus is talking about and living with integrity and people matter and not uh, manipulating them, let's just say that you make the decision, I'm going to get a credit card just so that I can buy an Astros jersey. And so you do. Somebody is willing to take a chance on you and they give you a credit card. So you take that credit card, you go online, and you buy a world champion Houston Astros jersey. It comes in the mail. You love it. You wear it with pride. And then the bill comes. You do realize that bills always come. And the bill comes, and you don't have any more money today than you did the day that you knew that you didn't have money to buy the jersey. So you just take that notice from the bank, from the credit card company that says, hey, you owe us $6,000 for that jersey, but you can pay it out. So you take that, and you take your checkbook, and you weigh them together. You go, no, I'm going to keep the checkbook, and you throw the bill in the trash. By the way, don't do this at home. And so, you have the jersey you wanted, you bought it on credit with money you didn't have, and so they send the bill, say, you owe that, okay, so you throw it away and you act like it never came. You know, one thing's about credit cards, they're pretty good at reminding you. So, another month goes by and they send you another bill. And you don't have any the money any more that day than you did the day that you bought the jersey, and so you take that bill and you throw it in the trash, you know that you can do that long enough. In your head, it's okay because you got what you wanted. But you can do that long enough that that bank or that credit card company is going to come after you and they're going to send you one that says final notice and if you don't pay now, you will die. And we will help you die. But you see, a religion, back to what Jesus was saying here, that allows us to use people in order to get we, what we want is no different than having a credit card to get what you want and enjoy what you have with it and never pay the bill. Sooner or later, those credit card companies are going to come after you. Jesus is speaking into a religion gone wrong. Because no longer was it about the integrity of dealing with people and handling them well. They were now having these big arguments about what exactly could they get by with without offending God and also without having to keep their word. That's the background on this little passage. Jesus says, don't be that guy. Don't be the one that uses other people to get what you want and finding loopholes in the system in order to pull it off. So you see, if I see people just as a resource or as a vehicle to get what I want, it opens the door for me to do really unethical things with them. But if I see people as God does 
And if I deal with people at a level where I see them as he sees them, then I will treat them like he treats them. You know how God treats people? Well, let's back it up to how God sees people. If I were to ask us, I bet probably preacher's not supposed to bet. So um, if I were to ask you, I feel confident that in our congregation this morning, the vast majority of us would be able to quote John chapter 3, verse 16. How does God see people? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's how God sees you. And if we begin to see people, or when we begin to see people the way God sees people, we will begin to treat them the way God treats people in loving ways that have no overtones or undertones of manipulation. It's strictly out of respect, strictly out of love, strictly out of what is best for them rather than what's best for me. People matter, so treat them accordingly. The religious leaders of the first century had lost sight of that. Jesus had not, nor can we. People matter. And so part of what we get to when we start wearing this that Jesus is talking about here, the, the life that is brilliant in a society that is eaten up with eaten people, is a life that is lived with integrity. It is a life with an acute awareness of identity and calling. I already started with that. I'm not going to spend much time here other than to say to us that when we come to this, we know that as salt and light, as people who are living to that standard that Jesus gives, that surpassing kind of righteousness, we just have to know that in a society like we're living in today, we will always be swimming upstream against the flow in these days. If we're to be the people of God that he has called us to be, we're going to have to work at it because our society is going quickly the other direction. I, I, I guess maybe one of the places this came home to me clearly, a number of years ago I had a friend who owned a plumbing company. He specialized in new plumbing construction. And they did hospitals and businesses, not too much on the house front, but every once in a while they would do that. Uh, and when he was a young man, he purchased the company from his father and his uncle. And he said uh, the first meeting that he went to uh, where they were letting out bids and trying to, you know, figure out who was going to get the plumbing contract, my friend went to that meeting and he had worked and he, he had very little margin and he was working the, you know, sharp pencil. He said, we had to get it down so that I was not going to make hardly any money off of it, but I needed the job so that I could keep my guys busy. And he said, I figured it out and I took my, and I took and I laid our proposal on the table. And one of the guys who was going to be the one making the decision said, where's the rest of it? And he said, I don't know what you mean the rest of it. He said, listen, if you're going to make it in business here, you just need to know that when you bring your proposal in and your bid, you also need to bring a paper sack that's full. Now, paper sack that's full in that context meant there needs to be some of that under-the-table money to grease the wheels of letting contracts. We swim upstream, whether you're in business or education, 
no matter where your daily life is spent, you will be surrounded by a society that maximizes personal benefit over personal integrity much of the time. The Jesus way dictates selfless living, not selfish living. Just to finish the story on my friend, he told that guy, he said, listen, if that's what it takes for me to get a contract, I just won't even bid anymore because I'm not going to do that. And the guy said, you'll never make it in business here. When I left that town, that plumbing company was the largest plumbing company south of San Antonio doing business because God honored his commitment to integrity. The Jesus way dictates selfless living. The best picture of that is Jesus himself as he dies on a cross investing in you. So we can't use people to get our way. When we do this right, when we get to love God and love people right, there are some implications for us, and let me close with these, just a couple of them. When we love God well and love people accordingly, then we can live with integrity. This is more than just taking oaths that Jesus is talking about here. I guess maybe a good way to say it is if we live with integrity the way Jesus is talking about, then when we act out our faith, our mouth follows suit. If I say to someone, this is my word, I'll guarantee. If I say to my fiance, let's go on a date, and I don't show up, that erodes the trust level in that relationship. By the other side of that thing, if I say, this is what I'm going to do, and I follow through with that, if I say, I'm going to be ethical and moral in all that I do, and I'm going to live with integrity, when I say yes, people will take it as a yes. I don't know that Jesus is so much saying you shouldn't put your hand on a Bible in some uh, political context in our day, and I don't think Jesus is saying don't do that. Don't take an oath like that. I don't think he's saying. Jesus' point is we need to treat people well like I treat people, and so when you act and when you say, they take it to the bank. It's the old, you remember when we were kids? Some of us don't remember when we were kids, but we used to be kids, all of us. And one of the things that we used to do is that old cross my heart and hope to die. You know, you know as well as I do, nobody expected anybody to die if that wasn't true, right? But we bank on that. Jesus is saying you shouldn't ever have to say cross cross my heart and hope to die because your life is so lived with integrity that if you say it, people take it to the bank. That's what he's talking about here. That's a life that is brilliant in our society. Society is sprinting the other direction, and so this life stands out. It's more than than just about oath-taking, but keeping your word is a good place to start. And it's easy for us to slip up on the oath-taking thing and keeping our word. So let me show you what I mean. Parents, 
How about our kids' choir? Wasn't that awesome? I love it. I love watching kids. You know, I just love it when they get up like this. They're praising the Lord as the way they know how, but they also play to an audience. And man, it's fun to watch them play to the audience. So let me talk to you as parents for a little bit. All in the context of integrity. When it comes to dealing with your children with integrity, if you say, if you do that one more time, whatever comes after that for you, and then they do it one more time. By the way, they're going to do it one more time. Okay? It's built in. That's the sin nature. You can thank Adam and Eve for that, or your husband, whichever one. It's easy to slip up on this living with integrity. Your yes means yes and your no means no. And so if your child pushes the limits with you and you say, if you do that one more time, then I'm going to put you in timeout or I'm going to whatever. And then they do it and you don't follow through. You are teaching them that your word means nothing. (laughs) My wife, the last time we were with our kids... And grandkids, one of the mothers in the room looked at this kid and said, do you want a spanking? And I thought, I was sitting on the couch, and I thought, I would give $100 if that kid said, yes, I do. (laughs) But kids are smarter than that. They don't have to say it with their mouth. They just say it with their actions. Of course they want a spanking. That's why they act the way they do. No, that's not right. Parents, if you don't follow through, those are idle threats. And first of all, you're going to raise, you know, when they're eight years old, that's one thing. When they're 18, that's another thing. If they don't learn to respect your authority in the home by consistency, they won't respect the authority of a police officer or a court system or a nation that says this is unacceptable. We have to get the integrity thing right. And and it is so pervasive in our society to let it go that it bubbles up in places that we don't really tie it together. I love what Michael Jordan said. Michael Jordan, many of you, most of you, surely all of you would know Michael Jordan. Perhaps, if not the, then one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And back in the mid to late 70s, before he was basketball's highest paid athlete, Michael Jordan signed six-year contracts. And because he did that, he said, by the way, that he was really not so much looking for the money, he was looking for the security. So he would sign a six-year contract. And in that six-year stretch, his game elevated. did this twice. His game elevated to the point that he was clearly the best player out there, but he was not even close to being the highest paid player. And people were saying, man, you need, you need to renegotiate. You need to hold out. You need to make them renegotiate your contract so you can get what you're worth. And, and his comment back into that was, if I don't honor my word, when I signed on the dotted line, I said, this is what I will play basketball for. And if I don't hold to my word, how in the world will I teach my children to honor their word? Living with integrity is easy to slip up with. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So guard your character. 
and your reputation carefully. My mom used to say to me when I was in high school, I, I was living for the devil when I was in high school. My mom used to say, Mark, you need to be careful because someone's watching you. Now, that made me a little paranoid, just to be honest with you. I was, I was already doing enough wrong that I was paranoid about police. But she kept saying this in this way that, you know, there are, and, and she finally explained it for me one day. There are these younger kids who go to church with you. They're watching you. It didn't mean too much to me until about, five, I don't know, five, six years later. One of those younger kids she was talking about followed the exact same path I did and told his mom, well, Mark does it. It must be okay. Let me tell you something. If you're a Christian, somebody's watching your life. So when they look in, make sure they see Jesus. Because the life of integrity is a brilliant strategy. Let's pray. And as we pray, let me just ask you, how is it with you and this particular passage of Scripture? Most of us would probably easily say, well, I don't do that swearing kind of stuff. Well, Jesus means more than just that. So how is it with you in your life today? If it's not where it needs to be, then I would suggest that you use this time of invitation as a correction time. That you just go before the Lord and say, I, I need to change this, Lord. I, I confess of what I've done. I've used people. I've not been totally honest with the way I live my life. So please forgive me. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that's where you need to start in this invitation time because he is the one who hung on a cross and died because of his love for you. You've got to respond to that. You have to either accept it or reject it, reject it. And this invitation time is a great time to get that straight. So, Father, as we come to this time of invitation, we pray that you would change lives, be at work even now in the lives of people for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, please.